This is First You Hustle, a podcast from the Columbus College of Art and Design meant to help students and budding creative professionals put their expertise to use. I'm Jordan Bell, and today we're going to talk about journey and the things that happen to us as individuals and to us as a generation that shape our outlook and what we create. Eric Slingerup presents his journey to create Story Snacker. Story Snacker is a collection of 60-second stories, and it's designed for parents on the go. It might just be the anecdote the world needs to combat fubbing. It's phone snubbing, and in some other countries, they're doing PSAs right now to parents to tell you to stop fubbing your kids. It's a dangerous thing, please. But this isn't an infomercial. It's a lesson in how the many parts of your life, personal, creative, professional, and the timing, when you were born, when major life events happen, that create a stew from which creative broth simmers, which for Eric includes trading monsters for necklaces, the hidden benefits of a day job writing radio spots, and having decades worth of story ideas itching for a home. How it all comes together, and the audacity to just do it, might help give you a blueprint for seeing your own creative visions come to life sooner than you think. And we'll throw in some advice to help you get cooking. The first one is to be mindful of the creative ether. Point number two, man, there's a democracy now in creativity because of technology that I just didn't have. You know how many people I had to get approval from for the app? Zero. Third thing is I would consider embracing the iterative approach. Welcome back to another semester of First You Hustle. If you're new to the program or returning, thank you for listening. Past episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Podbean, or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash firstyouhustle. Our episodes are fairly evergreen since they are advice-based. I highly encourage you to catch up on past topics. Today's episode is going to be a little different. You'll be hearing a recording of Eric Slangerup's presentation to CCAD illustration students, but this isn't an episode just for illustration students. The process and journey Eric takes us on applies to any craft, whether it's performance, art, design, you name it. So let's jump right in and join the conversation with Eric in Kinney Hall. My name's Eric Slangerup. Uh, thanks for inviting me to come out. Uh, I'm gonna tell you about some stuff uh, that I made. In particular, one thing that I made recently called uh, Story Snacker. It's an app that I've gotten, I've been thinking a lot lately about why we make what we make, like what brings us to do that. And I wanna talk to you guys a little bit about that now. You're probably much more aware of like what you're making now than I was that age. I think most of, if I understood correctly, mostly, like illustration majors, let me see, raise your hand. Like, oh, almost all of you. Okay, Anima any animation majors? Oh, all illustration, okay, great. So I was uh, telling the class yesterday, uh, congratulations, you're way more, you're like more courageous than I am at that age, because I started as an art major and then I just chickened out. I just freaked out, I just like didn't, I didn't believe in myself that I could make a living at it, and I ran and did something else instead, and now, like decades later, I'm coming back to it. I think I could, I think I was just too chicken. Uh, it was a different time back then, and uh, I like to write and draw. I liked to draw at the time a little bit more, so I think, but I, I switched over to writing and made a career out of writing for the last uh, uh, several years. Um, but deep down, I really wanted to draw too, so I started doing that. I'm gonna share a couple things with you I've done recently, and we'll talk a little, so, you're already braver than me that you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're doing the thing you wanna do, that's great. I wanna talk a little bit about doing that thing that maybe you were made to do. Like, each one of you has some experiences in your life different from anyone else's. Like, I don't think you ever would have made Story Snacker in the same way I would have because of the experiences that I've had. And 
I think in the same way, you're going to make some stuff that I, I just can't even imagine. Like it's some new, there's not just the art itself, but the vehicle in which the art lives. I think there are going to be some ways to do that that may not even exist just yet that I think are kind of exciting. Um, so here's a piece uh, I just did this past year uh, I thought was kind of fun. And I do have a few, I think I have three or four prints of it left. If you open your mouth today, if you ask a question, if you make a contribution to the conversation, this is, this is a conversation, you get to pick a lovely print. I've got some others too, but this, I think this was the most popular yesterday because I think most of them take, but I've got a couple of this one left. This is a print from a uh, Sharpie on canvas piece I did because uh, I really like to work in Sharpie. Uh, that's um, uh, five feet across by four feet high. And I did it on commission for the agency I, I worked for for 18 years after we got article after article in, the, in Columbus about what a creative hub Columbus has become. Are you guys aware of that? You guys are probably aware of that, right? I think that's pretty cool. Like when I got here back in 2000 is when I moved here. I, there were no articles like that. Like that wasn't, I'm not saying it wasn't a cool city then, but it just, I don't think that there wasn't as much awareness or presence about Columbus being kind of a hub for creative types. So I crowdsourced online, like, hey, what, what kind of, if I'm going to do a piece that's representative of creative fields that are coming to Columbus, what should I represent? And in my mind, I had like four or five like different ideas. And I got 45 of them, and I tried to represent them all here, everything from like choreography to filmmaking to culinary arts to brewing, a uh, little bit of, I got everything in there, I think, uh, represented that was suggested to me. Uh, it was a lot of fun to like add it all in. Um, also have a lot of butts in there. I like to put, uh, that's one of the hallmarks of my work, I like to put a lot of butts in my work. Um, you'll see a couple and you go, oh, spotted them. Those are the obvious ones, but there's more. There's like, if, you got to spend a lot of time with it and you find like extra like bonus butts. Um, that's just, you know, that's the fun thing about making something. You get to make the rules. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a world of butts. Um, uh, that's a piece I did uh, that I uh, have some prints of and uh, excited about. I don't know, you guys may have seen right next door at uh, Columbus Museum of Art. There's a new project for the Wonder Ball this year that's uh, on Saturday, 27th. You guys should go. I'm pretty sure there's like a really cheap student discount. It's not cheap if you're not a student, but it's uh, um, uh, it's for uh, it's for the cause of creativity uh, to educate children here in Columbus. It's a great cause, and they made um, they got 78 local artists to make to reimagine all 78 tarot cards, and I think that's probably hard to see when you see them all together here. This one's mine right here. Can you see that one? Is it really popping out like a? That's a, I got to do the five of swords. All I knew that it, you needed five swords in it. Uh, so I got to reimagine that and that was kind of fun. I liked the idea if he had five swords that seemed kind of dangerous, like he might have more cuts on him than was represented in traditional tarot cards. And like he'd be sharp all over, like everything would be pointy in, that wor in a world where you had to have five swords, everything would be pointy. Um, I've had some other people since explain to me that's not really how you should understand the tarot card, but um, it's done already. So they're going to be the uh, decks will be uh, for sale uh, in the uh, in the museum here on Saturday. So that was a really fun project to do. Probably no surprise that I would have been drawing later in life because just to go back uh, to uh, early '70s, one of my original pieces. This is a. Uh, this is an Easter card I made from my dear mom, who she uh, recently packaged everything up and gave back to me so I could have on, just to have it on, like, so it didn't get lost. And 
I was terror stricken when I saw this. And I think, you know, in the environment that we live in now, like if you, if a child gave that to his mom, like I think they'd put him under like evaluation for psychological problems or something. And I, like, I don't know why the Easter bunny is so disturbed looking, but that, it had a little note on the back. That was the Easter card to, uh, to my mom. So new early on, I like to tell stories through pictures and also through words. I like to write books too. That was one, but what really was a game changer for me uh, is when my dad moved to Memphis, uh, we moved to Memphis, Tennessee when I was uh, to get a job. He got a job at FedEx when I was in grade school. And uh, a contest had just been made available to draw Santa Claus. Uh, it was open to the entire city. And I won. And winning was a big deal because this is 1980. And the winner got an Atari. And Atari, was, Atari wasn't retro then. Atari was just brand new. Got three cartridges. Got Space Invaders. It was amazing. I was like really popular for a day or two. Uh, I was the first one to get on my block. Um, but I realized at that moment, like I, the, I, I realized the crossroads of art and commercialism, like it can, it can work, you can get rewarded in different kinds of ways. And that was exciting for me personally to be able to, uh, to do that, just to realize like, oh, like in addition to the joy of making, there's some other kind of like, you could maybe make a living at doing this. Wasn't the first time I had had some kind of like commercial exchange for art, but it was like one of the biggest for me and it was memorable. Um, so I kept drawing. This is a um, this is a self portrait I did in high school that I think was some kind of weird experimental piece. So I decided to cut myself up. Um, it's still another real disturbing piece that I don't know. Uh, I just wanted to share that that as I continue to make stuff like that, um, somebody thought I had showed some promise. So the local college in Memphis, the art college, uh, helped me put a uh, uh, my portfolio together and. Back in the day, this is what it looked like. It was on slides. Yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah, so that, this, was, this is 1987. This is, I guess, a while ago. Probably precedes most of your arrivals to this planet, I'm guessing. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, we put them all on slide, and I was like, okay, this is it. Went to art school, and then I, um, uh, then I switched midway through. Um, so some of my friends that knew me from... Uh, uh, grade school and high school, when my first book got published, uh, were amazed that I was the writer, not the illustrator. And I had to explain it's because I chickened out. So I started writing some children's books. First one got published was Dirt Boy. And although I liked to draw and had ideas about how it should look and use that to direct the illustrator, I didn't illustrate it myself. And um, much to the like, disbelief of most of my friends growing up with me. The book uh, did pretty well. I gave some kind of direction to it. Like I would draw some key frames and he drew them kind of stylistically different. I'll pass this around if you want to compare kind of styles. Um, but I liked, I liked drawing just more for direction um, than, like a, than a finished piece because I was too afraid to do it at the time. Did some, this was Dirt Boy, the idea that he would get, it was based on that kind of wives tale that if you don't take a bath, things start growing out of you. Um, that was the idea. And I realized, like, for me, I was more comfortable with my ability to come up with an idea than I was to execute said idea. And um, I still, I was feeling it yesterday, and I feel it today, too. I feel kind of intimidated showing some of this stuff to you guys because I'm sure, I haven't seen your work, but I'm pretty sure there are people in this room that, uh, from a technical aspect, are probably, like, way more advanced 
than, than me in, in your ability to illustrate. And I'm now comfortable with that. Either you, there was a time when maybe I wasn't. I just got to, um, last night, I, I took a look at your, at your teacher's work, and I was like, wow, this is really, really amazing, beautiful work, um, and prolific. Um, and I wasn't, I was, uh, like, I was, af I was afraid to do that until uh, much later in life. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about kind of how I got over that. So Dirt Boy did really well, did really well in, uh, in uh, Korea here. Koreans are, I don't speak Korean, but when it got its first foreign translation, it went to Korea. And because of that, uh, we talked a little bit about um, yesterday about promotional opportunities. Now, I was, I was mentioning that, you know, you just need, you're just kind of waiting for that first break. And once that happens, like, all these other, it, it's, it's kind of knocking down that, that very first uh, uh, brick in the wall, and then others start to fall too. So it got a foreign translation, and after that, it, it received an award. When it got one award, another award show said, oh, we're going to give it an award too. Then it got adapted for the children's stage. Then I kept getting other things happening to that book that allowed it to keep going. Then people got interested in me coming to go visit, so I'd talk about that book a little bit more. It's that when you have that piece and you're trying to like get it get exposure, like get people to talk about it, you, you might feel initially like there's this kind of resistance, like the, the inertia is, is stalled out. And you just have to keep like, you have to just keep working out, like mo mo the momentum has to come from you continuously until you get some kind of traction somewhere. And then all of a sudden the dominoes start falling. So that's kind of exciting, but it does, doesn't happen initially. Dirt Boy was um, my first book to get published, not my first attempt. I was, uh, I collected dozens of rejection letters, and even after our, the person who liked Dirt Boy, the editor who was like excited about it, basically made me rewrite the entire thing and made me cut it down to size. Like I cut a third of the words out of the original draft, and that's important because that's going to be, that was one of the factors that helped me uh, create Story Snacker down the road. So Made Monsterlicious was my second book. Uh, Santa and Me was my third. They did okay, not as well as Dirt Boy. Dirt Boy really... When you, you know, I listen to artists sometimes in the music world talk about their sophomore album and like what the, the pressure you feel for that if you do really well on your first one. I totally get that because it's really hard to duplicate. Like if you have really good success like one time, it's hard to duplicate it in the same way that time. You just have to like go back in your hole for a while and come back out and try something else. Um, so while I was doing all that and while my publishing career was going okay but wasn't quite feeding the bills, I... I got married and started making babies really early in life, like I was your age, and I was already a dad, and I needed to pay the bills, so I started doing advertising as well, and one of the things that I just want to mention, did a lot of kinds of advertising, but I did radio spots, and radio spots are interesting because there's a very specific word count. You have to write things in 160 words or less because people just can't speak that many words at a normal pace in and under a minute. But that was something very key for me, like figuring out how to tell a story with limits. And I know that you do that with illustration as well. Um, we incorporated some of those aspects of like within very tight confines of the story, both visually and verbally, and it came from some experiences like this. Um, so then I made this thing called Story Snacker. Uh, here's the app. We wanted to make the interface really easy, uh, partly because like, for somebody like me, like I'm old and technology isn't as intuitive for me as it might be for you because you've been, you're fluent in it in a way that I'll just never, like it's always going to be kind of a second language for me, not a, not a birth language. Um, Story Snacker is a collection of 60 second stories 
and it's designed for parents on the go or teachers or anyone when you're crunched for time, if you wanted to squeeze in a little more story time for in a young person's life and you only had literally 60 seconds, this would fit in that space naturally without rushing, without skipping a page, without doing anything else. And I'm not sure anything exists quite like that right now. An online, an online connect, uh, collection that's optimized, optimized for your phone that uh, is, uh, is made for that one minute space. I'm, uh, I'm really into onomatopoeia and sound effects. One of the things that I've learned through some research of reading a lot, like the, the science and the benefits of reading aloud to kids is that the more expressive and interactive you are, the more that experience is, a, is like a beneficial experience. There's this really cool kind of three-way, uh, th this benefit that comes from three-way interaction between two human beings and a third object, like a, p a piece of technology, something man-made. The people who first discovered this were the folks from Sesame Street, and I got to see one of them speak uh, two years ago that when Sesame Street first came out, they're like, we'd like to take this new thing called television, this was the year I was born, 1969, and make it educational. People were like, no, that's a, da that's a terrible idea, it's dangerous, no. And they did some research, and that's why Sesame Street, even if you watch it now, the reboot, has anybody seen the reboot that HBO does, Sesame Street? Were you not watching that? It's, really, it's actually really great. They feature Walking Dead. They've got a parody of Walking Dead. They've got a parody of like every, like every popular show right now because they want the adults to sit down on the couch with their kids, watch it, interact, and you get that three-way thing happening that leads to a kind of cognitive development that only happens in that moment when you have that three-way interaction. It's like all these uh, connections are being made that don't happen otherwise. That's what I want to have happen here with the phone in moments that typically, like typically what would have happened with that phone if a parent, and you had your kid with you, and you're standing at Giant Eagle and the, you know, waiting to check out your groceries, you and you realize you have a minute or two before it's your turn. Uh, you pull out your phone, and what do you do? You check your messages, and you check your feeds, and you check all these things, and your kid's looking up at you longingly, like wanting some kind of human interaction, and you're like, nope. And there's a term for that. It's called fubbing. Have you heard of that? That you, like they've written about that. Like you, like it's it's phone snubbing, and in some other countries they're doing PSAs right now to parents to tell you to stop fubbing your kids. <laughs> it's a dangerous thing. Yeah, please, I don't. Yeah, um, but that that's a thing that's happening worldwide, and I think it's something important that like it's a thing that I'm kind of passionate about. That I'm hoping my my art can help to alleviate or at least mitigate in some kind of way a little bit by having this as a, to hijack the technology that is usually the guilty party and make that the connective experience. I'm kind of excited about that as, as an idea. And this isn't meant to take, the, I don't want people like reading 50 stories in a row. If, you're, if you have time to read that many, you should probably like sit down with actual hardcover books, I think. This is meant as a complement to that experience, like it's, it's the snack in between the full-time meals. I want to go back first for a minute uh, to like what are some of the influences and how these might relate to you. So to do that, I want to talk about Moana. There's a mythos here about Moana that intrigues me about being chosen. If you're familiar with the story, you know, the, the ocean chooses her. And that's kind of a weird thing for me as an artist to think about. Like, have you been like, I don't know what your philosophical or spiritual beliefs are about like why you were why you 
were sparked into consciousness here on the world and why you were given this kind of magic gift that other people don't have, that you can do art, and other people are like, wow, you can do art. I can't do that. Like, wh why, why is that? And I want to talk a little bit about this idea, this notion of being the chosen one. You are the chosen one. It's this thing that comes up over and over in storytelling. Like you see Harry Potter and Star Wars and anything else like, and you see it in the Bible. Like you see it everywhere, this idea of being the chosen one. And I was thinking about how, like how that relates to me and this last thing I made, like Story Snacker. Like I don't want to get too like self-important or mythical about it. But I think maybe, I used to think maybe it was kind of BS, but now I'm thinking maybe there's something to this idea of being chosen. Like, I know I get to choose. I do the choosing, but I think the universe did something in choosing what I could make or how it was going to be made. And I've got a little diagram that I think is going to make it very clear here that I kind of want to walk you through for a minute. All of these are key factors that I think without them wouldn't, would not have allowed Story Snacker to come into being. Like, I just want you to look at this and think about your timeline, your universe, how it's going to influence. Like if you had to start writing down, and maybe it's even not a bad idea to jot down a couple of notes about, start thinking about the first three, five, 10, 20 most significant, pivotal events or things that have happened in your life. They might be personal for you. They might be trends happening in the, large, in the world at large right now that are influencing your thinking and your work, what you're doing. For example, when I talked about like drawing digitally, anybody else, have you ever done that? See, that, that would not have been my experience when I was your age because it didn't exist. So think about that for a minute. How does that influence your art? So let's back up for a minute. I was born way back when, Summer of Love, 1969. It's pre-internet. It's pre-cable. It's pre-cell phones, home computers, everything. Like anything part of that digital world, none of that existed back then. So for that, when we jump ahead to... 2018. Story Snacker is this thing that I don't know if I would have been aware of like a need for that had this stuff not been uh, introduced into my life later in life as an adult and particularly as a parent. So that happened. I started making some art, sold my, this is a 1978, sold my, made my first sale. It was a hot lava monster. I wish I still had it. I sold it for a puka shell necklace. I think I think I gave it away. It was a steal. I kept, it was worth at least two puka shell necklaces. But uh, I was pretty excited about that. Led to a lot more sales. Like I started a little bit, this was in the fourth grade, started a little business. I was drawing mostly monsters. I would draw, like you would tell me like what kind of, if you just told me like monster plus whatever, it could be a glue monster, a rock monster, lava monster. I would draw it and then you would give me whatever is in your pocket. Milk money, deck of cards, whatever. I had a good business going. Then Santa drawing contest, we talked about that. That happened in 1980. Then it was like, wow, I'm doing this. Went to art school, 1987, freaked out. Then I switched. So this first stream you see, creativity. Okay, that's one. That's one of several streams happening in my life, one factor. But then another one that happened is right here, tender age of 20, early 20-something. 20 Anybody in their 20s here? A couple of you? Okay. Uh, I became a dad. I'm not sure how this happened. But... I grew up in a very conservative religious uh, culture where that's what you did. That, by that age, you need to start like procreating. So I was, a, that's what I did, started procreating, became a dad. And that is like, so my first experience as a dad, I was still in college. It was hard being a dad in college. 
but not hard in the ways that it is now. So no cell phones, no, uh, I think we had a home computer by then, but the, the way in which the role that that played in my life was nothing like it is now, okay? It wasn't a portal to the world like it is now. So 1993, um, I became a dad. And I'm going to contrast it a little bit with what happens later in life. So I became a dad, started having a baby, and I have a second baby, then I have a third. I tell you, I like to make babies. I keep making babies. I have a total of five kids, and there's quite an age range between those five. We'll get to that in a minute. And in between, I'm like, oh, i got to make a living. So I start writing. I write radio spots, and I get really good at that. I love writing radio, and I truncate a story down to a 60-second space. Uh, notice a similarity, a story snacker there? Truncate that down, and that was something kind of important. I, I wouldn't, it's not a skill I would have sought out, but it was forced upon me. I'd write this script, this interactive script. I'd pick the actors, and they'd start reading it. I'm like, could you talk a little faster? Could you talk a little faster? And finally, I'd realize I have to cut down the wordage on that. And that was, uh, I did that for several years, and that was helpful. So advertising, it's another stream there in the mix. Um, started publishing books, published my first book, uh, got the book deal in 99, and then had a second and third book, and writing, like writing children's books in that space, that became a factor as well. And then in 05, I was like, ah, oh, I'm getting dated. Like in advertising, advertise, like every, I wasn't the youngest kid in the room anymore, and I was getting dated, and I didn't know, I couldn't speak digital in the same way that these young kids could. And I was like, I need to fix this or they're going to they're gonna like sweep me out the door. So like if I t a friend of mine said, you know, they have a new um, position to teach copywriting for new media, new and emerging media. I'm like, great, sign me up. I don't know anything about it, so I'm going to teach it. I totally I tricked them. They thought I was an expert. Uh, I became an expert fast. So I started learning about new media. And if you remember this in 05, I just put a little timeline here. The first three years I taught, in 06, Twitter came in. Like, I was teaching new media before Twitter even existed. And then the iPhone came out in 07. Like, it didn't even exist yet. This is not that long ago. Then apps, the first app was in market in 08. So that was, like, every, it was so tough doing a syllabus because, like, I had to, like, redo it every semester because there was something new. Like, what was the new media? Well, it just came out. You couldn't teach from a textbook. You just had to make it up as you went along. So that was another stream, like what's the latest thing? All these things are happening. And then in between here, um, tragedy, got divorced, all kinds of crises, uh, really terrible, horrible things all through here. And then found love, got remarried, and guess what? We started, started having babies again. So I became a dad again in 2014, like with a baby. So I had this baby. And the first time I remember having this baby, I was like this young guy and, the, and there were no cell phones. The second time, I'm like distracted by screens everywhere in my life, and I'm old, like I'm old dad now. And that moment was a moment I went, oh, like it, the spark went off. I need some, like I want to make this for me. I want to make this thing for me. Um, all those things that happened, and then I had a fifth baby too, so I didn't. But at that moment, that what to me was the spark for Story Snacker. The next year, we funded it on Kickstarter. We were successful. And we thought we'd get it out in a year. I was drawing all the pictures on a Wacom tablet. It was really like painful to do that. I'm not left-handed, I'm here. Like, it's painful. And then halfway through, uh, the iPad Pro came out with a Procreate. And uh, um, a friend said, dude, you need, to, you need to do it this way. You need to try this. This was made for what you're doing. And he was right. So scrapped everything, delayed the launch for a year, started over, and Story Snacker came out. I'm telling that to you because 
I feel like all these experiences, like if I share some more stories with you in Story Snacker, the stories themselves, the illustrations, the writing, they're autobiographical, or at least they're inspired by things that happened in my life. I think people probably told you that your all art is autobiographical in ways we either realize or we don't. When someone, uh, when my my psych professor from college first got a copy of Dirt Boy, he saw these Freudian undertones in it that I like. I wasn't even aware, but. <laughs> The dirt man, the giant's like this father figure that he kills and goes back to his mother. Like, I, I wasn't even aware of that. And then, uh, same thing in Story Snacker. I've had some uh, colleagues, uh, some people, professors, like in different industries. Uh, one a philosopher that told me I had some, quote, deep existential shit in one of my stories that I, I didn't even realize. You know, I'm like, that's right. I meant that. I totally meant for that kid's story, that one-minute kid's story to be deep and existential. So that's autobiographical, but what I'm submitting to you today is that not only is what you might draw somehow a reflection of who you are and the sum total of your experiences, but also the framework or the vehicle that that might take might also be autobiographical in some way that it's going to mark where you are in the history of the universe at, at this moment. Like you're, it's going to mark that. Apps did not exist before. I couldn't have made that earlier in life. Like, I wouldn't, wouldn't have been something I could have made. The technology, in fact, only existed in the way that I'm creating it now a little over a year ago, like not that long ago. And that's the way in which I'm making it. So I am excited about that. For me, the issue at large is can storytelling survive an age of continuous interruption in our lives right now? Can, it's the thing that makes us human and can it serve. That's an important thing to me. But for you... There's all these other things happening right now in your life. Like there's, there's issues of gender and race and cultural identity that I don't, even a few years ago were not like top of mind that I think might influence your art. So I just want you to, didn't want to sound too preachy. I just want you to think about that because I think it's really, I think it's going to lead to your best work. Okay. So what has the universe chosen you to make and who else has it chosen? This is where I want to get to a little bit of a, a cautionary tale. And this is, again, from my own experience. And I'm going to uh, do it in the form of sharing some tips. And the first one is to be mindful of the creative ether. I've heard this explained in different ways, but I like to think of it as the creative ether. There's some stuff happening right now. It's, and you guys are already plugged in, whether you know it or not, because you're artists. You know what's happening in pop culture. You're making connections. You know what's happening in your life. You're sensitive in a way that others are not. Like you pick up on those things, and you start coming up with ideas. And there are other people close, like they're configured in a way that's close to you, and they're coming up with an idea right now that's kind of close to yours. And it's a little bit of a race. And I've been, I've won that race before many times, and I worked in advertising for years. I've won that race, and I've lost that race. We developed this campaign just a year ago, put a lot of money into it. It was created around neon signs. And someone completely disconnected, like I don't, I don't know where that came from in my head, but this was in the pharmaceutical space and another pharmaceutical company completely disconnected from us on the other, like different city, different category of disease, everything, neon sign campaign. It looks like if you hold them up, they look really, really, really close. In some ways, theirs might even look better than what we had. 
And I, but we had to stop it. They be, and I've, that's happened so many times. Why does that happen? Why do several movies come out like, of the same, like at the same time? Why does that happen? I think it's the ether. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, old sketchbook here. Years and years ago, I was drawing stuff. And sometimes I just come up with the idea of the drawing first. And I was drawing all these ideas where in the landscape, I'd have all these hidden faces. And that was going to be like the subtext of the story. See that face there in the mountain? Or in the clouds, you see, like that was just the idea. And I was, it was really rough. I was like, oh, wouldn't this be cool? And I was at a book tour. This was uh, when Dirt Boy was still kind of, I was doing the circuit for Dirt Boy. And I met a fellow author and he said, oh, well, you're going to love my book. It's already made. And I'm like, damn it! You know, um, like it doesn't mean I couldn't do my story, but I'm just saying there was some, like right at that moment I was drawing that, he was finishing these, something in the ether. I hadn't seen that before in that way for a children's book as a as an uh, like an undercurrent to the story but it was really beautiful and he did it and he beat me to it helpful to think about the ether um, so that's something that was i think helpful for me okay point number two i would take it's man there's a democracy now in creativity because of technology that i just didn't have when i was your age that i would take advantage because you don't have the gatekeepers and for dirt boy i was telling you about all those rejection letters i was collecting you don't have to do that anymore. You know how many people I had to get approval from for the app? Zero. I just get to like put it out there. Now, you might look at the app and you might say, hey, it really sucks. And there's a lot of sucky apps out there because you don't have the gatekeepers. That's the downside. But I'm going to let the users decide. Like, I'm going to see if it becomes popular on its own. I didn't let a, an authority in the industry decide that for me. So the onus is on you. There's pros and cons to it, and I know you probably want the creative validation of having an industry authority say, you, yes, we choose, you, we choose to have your piece in our gallery or have your piece on our cover or whatever, but it doesn't have to go that route, not anymore. It's a totally valid route. Like I've had friends here in town that started, like got a coffee table book deal out of a blog, you know, it's, I mean, that's how it's, it's done that way. Now, that my, my opinion has had to change over the last few years where when people would ask me about self-publishing or other things, I'd say, waste of time. And now I'm like, oh, maybe not. Maybe not a waste of time because you can just kind of go your own route. And that's how apps work now. There's no app gatekeeper. You get to decide if it's going to get out there or not. So get it out there. Um, here's, the, like, here's the site right now. It's live. People can download it. It's, it's a real thing. I made it and it's out there. People are using it now. I'm getting feedback on it from a very small, only a couple hundred people right now. We got our first uh, paycheck from Apple, $93.80. After they took their cut, I have to split that three ways with my two partners. And um, I have to start paying back some of the legal fees for trademarking. So now I'm only like four grand in the hole. Like I'm practically independently wealthy now, but it's real. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's real now and I'm excited. That was totally up to me. Like, I got to decide that. There's no web police. I wish there was sometimes. And it, well, who knows? After net neutrality, I don't. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe there Who knows? But right now, it's out there. Third thing, third and final thing, is I would, I would consider embracing the iterative approach. And I say that with a caveat because I understand that goes against your notion as a craftsman. I mean, as a craftsman, you want it to be perfect, and then you want to unveil it to the world. And I just think in this day and age, it might be worth considering in some, in some aspects saying it's perfect enough and get it out there. Just worth consideration. I'm not saying 
give give up on your perfectionism, give up on your quali- give up on your vision. I'm just saying maybe like like I know right now when I look at the Pizza Pirate, which is the very first story that I did, um, I kind of liked how that illustration turned out, but I didn't even know that I could change the thickness of the pen. So you notice this drawing's a little bit different. And right now, I mean, I, I might redo this one at some point. I didn't understand, like I didn't understand, I didn't know there were layers. So I just was, I was just making it up as I went along. And this is so rudimentary compared to some of the sketches I've done since that as I still love this story, I think it's, fun. it's been one that I got good feedback on. Kids don't seem to care. First, second grade don't seem to care. But I, I wanted to get it out there to get some kind of interaction because I think from that, I have something, I have something that I can learn. Um, so some of these other drawings that uh, Kevin had a home, the face that got stuck that way, if you saw a version of that, or this idea of the hungry robot, these are like half stories, and I have a million, and you probably have a bunch of them too. You have these little like germs, these little nuggets that went, like maybe there's a, a home for that in some kind of way that I think might be really like valid in a way that could be a, pre, in a way that might bring joy or utility to someone out there. And I think that could be really exciting. So I would, I would just be open to that idea and maybe be a hair less precious about what you make and more open-minded. Story Snacker is currently available for download from the Apple Store. It's suggested for kids age 2 to 8, and pediatricians do not recommend screen time for newborns or anyone under the age of 2. So if you or a friend are checking it out, just make sure it's appropriate for your child. Eric currently plans to do as many stories for the app as he can with a goal for 100, but admits he might get tapped out sooner. And then after 100, some way, somehow, he'd like to open up the app to include other storytellers and illustrators. So maybe you? What started as a way to get ideas out of his head and into the ether became an antidote to fubbing, a new word I just learned that's really hard to pronounce, and potentially in the future, a new marketplace for future authors. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on First You Hustle. Take care. Jimmy H. Boogaloo by the Juanitos, Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.